All right, let's talk about Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest. This is the first drama that we've read in this class, and reading drama is a is a particular skill. You kind of have to learn how to do it well, and one key is to try to keep all the characters straight by thinking of them as, you know, casting them in your head, thinking of different people saying it. It can help a lot if you get a cast recording of the of the play and listen to that as you're reading. Uh, another thing is to remember that the, this is just the script for the play. So you always have to be picturing what this would look like and sound like and be like on an actual stage. That's what it's designed for. It's not designed just to be read in a, in a classroom. Um, another um, difficulty with the importance of being earnest is that it is through to the bones a comedy. Uh, it, it's a farcical comedy. And as anyone knows, you, you kind of uh, explaining a joke uh, it, it kills it. Uh, so I will try not to do that, but it's hard not to since almost everything that's great about uh, the importance of being earnest is in its comedy. And comedy allows a writer to say things that they can't in any other way. This is a long tradition. All the way back in the, in the Middle Ages, there was a court jester, and he was able, by making jokes, to say things to the king that nobody else could say. Uh, good comedy still does that, you know, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, polit obviously political satire or seemingly just silly stuff like uh, The Simpsons or South Park. The comic mode gives uh, a writer a freedom that just about no other kind of writing does. So let's begin uh, the beginning of the play. We hear, again, think about this as a, a stage performance. So we see a luxuriously furnished apartment, an artistically furnished apartment, and we hear the sound of the piano in the, in the next room. Lane, who is the butler, is arranging afternoon tea on the table. So you can tell he's the butler by the way he's dressed and by the fact that he's doing what a butler does. He's getting the, the, the tea time service ready. Uh, after the music has ceased, Algernon enters. Algernon is one of the two main young men in the in the play. And he asks, Did you hear what I was playing, Lane? I didn't think it polite to listen, sir. Now, from the very beginning of the play, you know, we've got a joke here. And the way this joke and the way most of Wilde's jokes, and in fact the way most jokes, period, work, is through incongruity, that there's some mismatch between what you expect and what you get. Uh, here, I, again, I know I'm explaining the joke and killing it, but what you expect is for a, a servant to say, oh, you, you played beautifully. That's what a servant will, of course, say because they're your servant. Uh, Lane uh, neatly sidesteps that by saying, I didn't think it polite to listen. So it would not be good manners to listen to your music because then I might have an opinion on it. Uh, and again... This is, as I said, there's something subversive about comedy in the way that it can make social commentary here. It's, even those first two lines, uh, Wilde is making a comment about the, the class and power relations between the upper class and their servants here. Uh, Lane has to have that kind of evasion to get through. Um, and a lot of the, I won't be unpacking all of the jokes in the in the play that way, or we'd be here all semester. Uh, but you can. There's a lot of 
depth going into these. They're not just funny lines, though they are very, very funny lines. There are almost always some point to them, uh, and also often a thematic point that relates to other things in the play. That's why this is a, 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 a comic farce that has been popular for so long. Now, one of the topics that Wilde most consistently makes fun of in, throughout the play is attitudes about marriage. Look at where they're talking about uh, uh, Lane and Algernon are talking about the champagne. He says, why is it that the bachelors, then at a bachelor's establishment, the servants invariably drink the champagne? I ask merely for information. I attribute it to the superior quality of the wine, sir. I have often observed that in married households, the champagne is rarely of a first-rate brand. Good heavens! Is marriage so demoralizing as that? I believe it is a very pleasant state, sir. I have uh, had very little experience of it myself up to the present. I have only been married once. That was in consequence of a misunderstanding between myself and a young person. I don't think that I'm much interested in your family life, Lane. No, sir, it is not a very interesting subject. I never think of it myself. Very natural, I am sure. All right, now look at all the things that are going on here. First of all, the thing that uh, uh, makes Algernon say that marriage is demoralizing is that the married households don't have good champagne. That's the important thing. That's uh, what, what marriage brings you to. It lowers your standards. You don't have the, the, the best alcohol. Um, and then Lane's comment about what he knows about marriage, that he doesn't know much about it. I've only been married once. Um well, you know, that's, uh, of course, in Victorian society, you, un unless you were, uh, your spouse died, you pretty much were only married once. Uh, but the implication is, well, you know, if you married several different people, you'd have uh, more experience and you could tell better marriage. Um, again, poking fun at the idea that maybe the Victorian idea of, of uh, monogamy has its downside. Uh, and why did they get married? That was in the co the consequence of a misunderstanding between myself and a young person. So it was some misunderstanding that they got married. No real romance here at all. Um, and as after Lane leaves, uh, Algernon is kind of upset. Lane's view on marriage seems somewhat lax, really. If the lower orders don't set us a good example, what on the earth? What on earth is the use of them? Now here, Wilde is doing something where he's he's flipping. He does this quite a lot. He does these turns of phrase that flip the conventional wisdom. Now it was a cliche in Victorian culture that the upper classes were supposed to set a, a moral uh, uh, example to the lower classes to show them how to behave, and. Algernon has just flipped that on its head. He says, if the lower orders don't set us a good example, what on earth is the use of them? That kind of reversal of the cliché or the, the social values is something that Wilde works into a lot of these comic lines of his. So then we get, we've met Algernon, who is our uh, the first young man, and then we get uh, Mr. Ernest Worthing, Jack, comes in. Um, and he sees Algernon says, eating as usual. If Algernon is always eating. Uh, there, the idea of appetites in this play is one of the kind of recurring jokes. Um, and in fact, he's Jack is surprised. Uh, he says, uh, why all these cups? Why cucumber sandwiches? Why such reckless extravagance in one so young? Who is coming to tea? 
Oh, merely Aunt Augusta and Gwendolen. How perfectly delightful. Yes, it, will, it is all very well, but I'm afraid Aunt Augusta won't quite approve of your being here. May I ask why? My dear fellow, the way you flirt with Gwendolen is perfectly disgraceful. It is almost as bad as the way Gwendolen flirts with you. Uh, there again you see the, the rhetorical strategy that Wilde uses in his humor, those, those kind of neat reversals. The way she, you flirt with her is almost as bad as the way she flirts with you. Earlier, Jack said that when one is in town, one amuses oneself. When one is in the country, one amuses other people. It is excessively boring. So again, uh, Wilde just loves those beautifully balanced rhetorical phrases that they make the what he says sound even wittier. And we find out that Jack intends to propose to Gwendolyn. He says, I'm in love with Gwendolyn. I've come up to town expressly to propose to her. And Algernon says, I thought you would come up for pleasure. I call that business. Here again, there's this very cynical attitude about marriage that runs through the play. Uh, it says, uh, it, it's utterly romantic. Uh, Jack says, how utterly romant- unromantic you are. He says, I don't see anything romantic in proposing. It's very romantic to be in love, but there's nothing romantic about a definite proposal. Why, one may be accepted. One usually is, I believe. Then the excitement is all over. The very existence of romance, essence of romance, is uncertainty. If I ever get married, I'll try to. I'll certainly try to forget the fact. So here again, this is very funny, almost very silly, but it's also saying something about the way Wilde feels about the institution of marriage, that uh, it it excludes romance. It seems designed to exclude romance. Um, uh, we get, you know, another one of Algernon's lines, divorces are made in heaven instead of marriages are made in heaven. Uh, again, the way that Wilde will do that, you know, take a cliche and turn it on its head, makes you think about that. Well, why are divorces, divorces are blessed, right? That would be a great, oh, you know, it's it's a godsend to get a divorce. And we also get here the introduction of Cecily. Algernon wants to know from uh, from Jack who Cecily is. Uh, because he's read his cigarette case, uh, though uh, Jack is very upset that he's read the cigarette case. And he's, uh, Algernon says, this is the bottom of 1736, Oh, it is absurd to have hard and fast rules about what one should read and what one shouldn't. Uh, more than half of modern culture depends on what one shouldn't read. Again, a nice kind of satirical dig there. Um, I am quite aware of the fact, and I don't propose to discuss modern culture. It isn't the sort of thing one should talk about in private. Uh, now, again, he's turning a cliché on its head. Usually you say, that's not the kind of subject we discuss in public. And now this is the kind of thing we shouldn't discuss in private. Uh, this would be something you know we would talk about in public. Um, again, all of this is drawing attention to the absurdity of some of the clichés that people think about here and never really think about. And the way that Wilde writes makes you think about them. And because you're laughing while you're doing it, he can kind of get under your defenses. You, if you were listening to him, you know, give a lecture about this, it wouldn't have the same impact. But because he's made you laugh, he can make you think in a way that really only really great comedy can. And here we find out about the, the double life, the double identity that Jack is leading. He says that his name uh, isn't Ernest, it's Jack. 
And and he says, uh, Algernon is appalled by this. Well, of course you're earnest. You look earnest. You know, it's on your card. He says, well, no, I'm earnest in town and Jack in the country. And Algernon says, oh, you're a Bunburyist. Um, So we get the the backstory of this, and we find out that uh, Miss Cecily Cardew is Jack's Ward, he is uh, in, in not her. He's her legal guardian, essentially. And as he's describing on page seventeen thirty-eight, Jack is saying why he has this double identity. He says, "My dear Algy, I don't know whether you will be able to understand my real motives. You are hardly serious enough. When one is placed in the position of guardian, one has to adopt a very high moral tone on all subjects. It's one's duty to do so." And as a high moral tone can hardly be said to conduce very much to either one's health or one's happiness, in order to get up to town, I have always pretended to have a younger brother of the name of Ernest, who lives in the Albany and gets into the most dreadful scrapes. That, my dear Algy, is the whole truth, pure and simple. The truth is rarely pure and never simple. Modern life would be very tedious if it were either, and modern literature a complete impossibility. Um... Again, the, the, the beautiful little witticisms Wilde gets in there. But notice that what he's saying, he needs to have this imaginary younger brother, Ernest, uh, so that he can get out of the high moral tone that he has to adopt as the guardian. He wants to have a little fun. And we find out that Algernon has a similar thing. He has a, a uh, an invaluable permanent invalid called Bunbury, and whenever he wants to get out of an engagement, he says, oh, I would, but my friend Bunbury is taken ill, and I need to be with him. I need to help him. Um, now, think about how this is very similar to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, in both cases, we've got these respectable uh, Victorian gentlemen who are using his secret identity to have their fun. Uh, this is, again, this is a theme that is very deep in Victorian culture. There were so many strictures on your public persona that you almost had to have a kind of a, a, a hidden life, a closet life, uh, where you engaged in the things you really wanted to. And both of them, in a much more innocent way than Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, of course, but both Jack and Algernon are indulging in that, in this play. But Jack says that if Gwendolyn accepts me, I am going to kill my brother. Indeed, I'll kill him in any case. Cecily is a little too much interested in him. and is rather a bore. So he, Jack says he's going to get rid of his imaginary brother, uh, even, even if Gwendolyn doesn't accept him. And Algernon says, nothing will induce me to part with Bunbury. And if you ever get married, which seems to be extremely problematic, you will be very glad to know Bunbury. A man who marries without knowing Bunbury has a tedious time of it. So the suggestion is you need this this double life even more when you get married than when you're a single man. And, and Jack said that when I marry, I certainly won't want to know Bunbury. And Algernon replies, then your wife will. You don't seem to realize that in marriage, three is company and two is none. So it, it, again, there it, he's in a very comic way saying, well, you know, you have to have extramarital affairs. You know, three is company. You're going to get bored if there's two of you. That's no fun at all. 
Um, and again, this is very lighthearted and very funny, but it's making a real point about the structure of society at this time, about how it sets up these very rigid rules about relationships and how it forces people to be hypocritical. Now, in come Gwendolyn and her mother, Lady Bracknell. Uh, and again, the topic of marriage comes up in a, in a comic way. Um, they explain why they were a little bit late. This is the top of 1740. Uh, I'm sorry if we are a little late, Algernon, but I was obliged to call on dear Lady Harbury. I hadn't been there since her poor husband's death. I never saw a woman so altered. She looks quite twenty years younger. Um, now again, that's the kind of incongruity of a good joke. Oh, I, uh, the poor widow, her husband just died. I've never seen her anyone so changed. She looks twenty years younger. Uh, so actually, the uh, the. Uh, death of her husband has been uh, a benefit. Algernon says a little bit later, he says that I hear her hair has turned quite gold from grief. Lady Bracknell, it certainly has changed its color from what cause I, of course, cannot say. Uh, so again, this is just a little incidental. He gets, you know, while he gets a few jokes out of it and moves on, but it's a suggestion that this woman freed from this unpleasant marriage is actually better off than she was when she was married. Now, Algernon uh, contrives to get Lady Bracknell out of the room for a moment so that uh, Jack can propose to Gwendolyn. And Gwendolyn tells us, at this at the bottom of page uh, 1741, For me, you have always had an irresistible fascination. Even before I met you, I was far from indifferent to you. Jack looks at her in amazement. We live as I hope you know, Mr. Worthing, in an age of ideals. The fact is constantly mentioned in the more expensive monthly magazines and has reached the provincial pulpits, I am told. And my ideal has always been to love someone of the name of Ernest. There is something in that name that inspires absolute confidence. The moment Algernon first mentioned to me that he had a friend called Ernest, I knew I was destined to love you. Now, this is a kind of an absurd plot point. And he says, we live in an age of ideals. Well, actually, they, they live in an age of surfaces, um, as somebody says later in the play. Um, and her ideal is just somebody named Ernest. It's just a surface detail. Uh, it's nothing essential about the person. Um, it's nothing idealistic about it. it it's, it's completely arbitrary. But then, of course, a lot of the reasons that we find people attractive in a culture are completely arbitrary. So Wilde is suggesting that the, the markers of what are important in uh, romantic attraction, maybe they're all just as arbitrary as wanting to marry a man whose name was Ernest. Um, and so she doesn't want to marry anyone named Jack. And so Jack, of course, is thinking, well, I've got to get christened. I've got to change my name to Ernest so I'll be acceptable. And notice that uh, Gwendolyn tells him that you haven't proposed to me yet. Um, he says, well, may I propose to you now? I think it would be an admirable opportunity. Uh, now, she's making him go through the form. He's already essentially asked her to marry him, but just not in so many words. But she has to have it in so many words. Again, the, the ex external form is more important than the actual feeling. She makes him go through all of the, the, the motions. Now, Lady Bracknell comes in and sees him on his knees proposing and says, Mr. Worthing, rise from that semi-recumbent position. It is most indecorous. And uh, when Gwendolyn says, I am engaged to Mr. Worthing, Mama, and uh, 
Lady Bracknell says, pardon me, you are not engaged to anyone. When you do become engaged to someone, I, or your father, should his health permit him, will inform you of the fact. An engagement should come on a young girl as a surprise, pleasant or unpleasant as the case may be. It is hardly a matter that she could be allowed to arrange for herself. Um, now, again, Lady Bracknell has all of these kind of built-in prejudices of her her class or the built-in assumptions that, well, no, you're not engaged. We will tell you that you're engaged. And I love it. Her fa- his father, should his health permit him. Um, uh, Mr. Uh, Lord Bracknell's health is mentioned constantly. He always seems to be sick. I imagine that that is a parallel with Bunbury, the imaginary friend who's always sick. I think that... Uh, uh, Lord Bracknell is probably what Shakespeare called crafty sick uh, when it suits his purposes. Uh, but notice how often that his, his health is mentioned in the play. So Lady Bracknell is going to interview Jack and see if he will make a suitable husband. And her first question, do you smoke? Well, yes, I must admit I smoke. I am glad to hear it. A man should always have an occupation of some kind. Now, again, these kind of incongruities, you would think somebody asked you, smoke, and you said, yes, that would be a mark against you. No, no, that's her idea of having an occupation, something to do. It gives you an idea of how idle the idle upper class was. How old are you? 29. That's a good age. And she says, "Uh, I've always been of the opinion that a man who desires to get married should know either everything or nothing. Which do you know? I know nothing, Lady Bracknell. I am pleased to hear it. I do not approve of anything that tampers with natural ignorance. Ignorance is like a delicate, exotic fruit. Touch it, and the bloom is gone. The whole theory of modern education is radically unsound. Fortunately, in England, at any rate, education produced no effect whatsoever. If it did, it would prove a serious disdanger to the upper classes, and probably lead to acts of violence in Grosvenor Square. Uh, again, her her responses are just kind of out of left field. You know, oh, I'm glad you're uh, you're you don't know anything. Ignorance that's a good thing, and you know, don't educate people. They might you know uh, that might lead to revolution. Uh, ask ask his income. Uh, ask now notice the the um, the order of these questions is as interesting as the substance of them. The very first thing she asks out of the gate is, do you smoke? Not, who are your parents? How much do you make? You will be able to support my daughter. None of that. You know, do you smoke? Um, And do you know everything or nothing? Those are the questions she most wants to hear the answers to. And she finally gets to the bottom of uh, 1744. And now to minor matters. Are your parents living? I have lost both my parents. Both? To lose one parent may be regarded as a misfortune. To lose both seems like carelessness. Uh, again, she's taking the, the lost overly literally, you know, like it's his fault that his parents are dead. Um, and says, uh, I, I don't actually know who I am by birth. Uh, that he was, he was, he, so he tells the story about how he was found in a handbag at uh, uh, Victoria Station. Well, Lady Bracknell is appalled by this. Uh, says, I confess, I feel somewhat bewildered by what you have just told me. To be born, or at any rate bred, in a handbag, whether it had handles or not, seems to me to display a contempt for the ordinary decencies of family life that reminds one of the worst excesses of the French Revolution. I presume you know what an unfortunate, that unfortunate movement led to. 
As for that, uh, the particular locality in which the handbag was found, a cloakroom at a railway station might serve to conceal a social indiscretion, has probably indeed been used for that purpose before now, but it could hardly be regarded as an assured basis for a recognized position in good society. Um, so she's not having any of this. You, you just you're in a handbag, and again the little the little social and political comments she gets in. This would this would you know this is a contempt for the way things are supposed to be, the way they had in the French Revolution, which led to Napoleon and all of that. Um, and a, a cloakroom, he says, it might be a social indiscretion. Uh, well, you know, cloakroom, somebody might, uh, uh, a couple might get in there for a little privacy, a social indiscretion. But says that's uh, that may not, doesn't mean it's proper for you to be found there as a child. And so Lady Bracknell tells him, I would strongly advise you, Mr. Worthing, to try and acquire some relations as soon as possible and to make a definite effort to produce at any rate one parent of either sex before the season is quite over. Well, I don't see how I could possibly manage to do that. I can produce the handbag at any moment. It is in my dressing room at home. I really think that should satisfy you, Lady Bracknell. Me, sir? What has it to do with me? You can hardly imagine that I and Lord Bracknell would dream of allowing our only daughter, a girl brought up with the utmost care, to marry into a cloakroom and form an alliance with a parcel. So... His parentage is completely unacceptable. He's a, he's an orphan, and he th therefore he cannot marry Gwendolen. Now, after Lady Bracknell leaves, Algernon comes back in, and uh, Jack is telling her that it didn't go well. Uh, and he says, this is the middle of page 1746, Upon my word, um, uh, if I thought that, I'd shoot myself. You don't think there is any chance of Gwendolen becoming like her mother in about a hundred and fifty years, do you, Algy? All women become like their mothers. That is their tragedy. No man does. That's his. Uh, now, again, this is a kind of a, a silliness, but Wilde is making a kind of an interesting point. Women become like their mothers. Men don't. Uh, it's tragic that women become like their mothers. It's tragic that men don't. Um, again, there's a, there's a lot about... Uh, parent-child relationships and gender politics that you could unpack from that uh, that phrase. But of course, it's just passed off as something that's it's funny. And even, in fact, Jack asks, is that clever? He says, well, it is perfectly phrased and quite as true as any observation in civilized life should be. And a little farther down, Algernon says, why don't you tell Gwendolyn the truth about your being earnest in town and Jack in the country? Jack replies in a very patronizing manner, my dear fellow, the truth isn't quite the sort of thing one tells to a nice, sweet, refined girl. What extraordinary ideas you have about the way to behave to a woman. This is, what do you think? Well, you can't just go around telling the truth to people, especially to a, a nice girl like, like Gwendolyn. Now, Gwendolyn sneaks back in to have a, another word with, with Jack. This is the top of 1748. He says, Ernest, we may never be married. From the expression on Mamma's face, I fear we never shall. Few parents nowadays pay any regard to what their children say to them. The old-fashioned respect for the young is dying fast, is dying out. Now again, think about how that's flipping it. It's usually what you say is right, is that children don't respect their parents. And she's saying the parents just don't respect their children the way that they used to. It tells them, the story of your romantic origin is related to me by Mama, with unpleasing comments, has naturally stirred the deeper fibers of my nature. 
Your Christian name has an irresistible fascination. The simplicity of your character makes you exquisitely incomprehensible to me. Your town address at the Albany I have, what is your address in the country? And so she gives him that, and of course, uh, Algernon hears this, and because he's already expressed interest in Cecily, that's setting all of that up. Uh, so we end the first act with these... Uh, frustrated engagement between Jack and Gwendolyn. Uh, they want to get married, but the, uh, the mother will not permit it. Now, you might notice here and throughout the play, the characters all speak very alike. They don't have distinctive voices or ways of, of speaking, and that's deliberate. First of all, it allows Wilde to have a, a, a consistent tone. He likes to, He has these great one-liners and these great witty things, and he wants everybody to be able to say them. But it also, I think, reflects a world in which the individual characters are just roles. Uh, You don't get a sense of a a rich psychological person the way you would in Jane Austen's novels, where the characters all do have very distinctive ways of speaking. And, and, you know, you can can tell from the dialogue who is talking, even if you don't, uh, don't see the names. That's not really so true for Wilde, but Wilde is thinking about a a world in which the the individual personalities have been kind of erased by this social game that they're all playing. There are all of these rules that they have to abide by, all these roles they have to play, and that almost takes over their individual personalities. Now, the second act of the play takes place at uh, the manor house that where Jack lives, his country house. Uh, and here the scene begins in the second act with Cecily and her tutor, Miss Prism. And notice Miss Prism says at the bottom of 1749, Your guardian enjoys the best of health, and his gravity of demeanor is especially to be commended in one so comparatively young as he is. I know of no one who has a higher sense of duty and responsibility. And Cecily replies, I suppose that is why he often looks a little bored when we are th- when we three are together. Now, remember, this is the reason that uh, Jack gave for having this double, for having his imaginary brother, uh, because he has to play this role, this very serious, a high sense of duty and responsibility. And Cecily kind of sees through that, that uh, that uh, makes him a little boring, doesn't it? Though, where she is very attracted to the very idea of his naughty, evil brother. And notice the way here in this opening scene with uh, with Cecily and Miss Prism, uh, we find out just, you know, by the way, that Miss Prism wrote a, a three-volume novel. Now, a three-volume novel would be like a Jane Austen novel. They would be bound in three volumes. And these were considered trash novels, mostly. You know, this, this was not serious literature. Um... And uh, we find out that Miss Prism wrote one. And Cecily says, Did you really, Miss Prism? How wonderfully clever you are. I hope it did not end happily. I don't like novels that end happily. They depress me so much. Uh, Again, (laughs) that's wonderful. You know, those happy endings make me so sad. And Miss Prism says, The good ended happily, the bad unhappily. That is what fiction means. Again, that's such a sly little comment there, right? Uh, it, it, the good end well, the bad end unhappily. That's fiction, which suggests that maybe it's not the way things really are. Um, and she found she says, "Well, I, but I, the, the manuscript was was lost." 
Uh, but then we, in comes Dr. Uh, uh, Chas, Chasable, who's the, the, uh, the uh, local, local clergyman. And it's clear from the very beginning that uh, he is very interested in Miss Prism. And in fact, as soon as, as Dr. Chasable comes in, uh, Cecily says, Miss Prism has just been complaining of a slight headache. I think you, it would do her so much good to have a short stroll with you in the, in the park. And says, Cecily, I have not mentioned anything about a headache. No, no, dear, Miss, no, dear Miss Prism, I know that. But I felt instinctively that you had a headache. Uh, so now she's trying to set it up. Oh, you know, she's she's not. She has a little headache. Why don't you take her for a stroll in the park? She's trying to make a hook up here, and Miss Prism actually says, I, "I find I have a headache after all, and a walk might do it good." So now notice the, again this idea of fiction and reality. By planting that idea, Cecily has made it come true. Uh, and so these boundaries between fiction and reality, between the, the role that you're playing and the reality of who you are, get very muddled up in this play. It's very easy to slip from one to the other. Now once Cecily is alone on the stage, the the butler Merriman comes in and announces that Mr. Ernest Worthing has come. He's got the card. Remember that Algernon stole one of Jack's cards that said Ernest Worthing on it. Uh, so he's allowed him, gives him the entry here. And Cecily says, I have never met any really wicked person before. I feel rather frightened. I am so afraid he will look just like everyone else. He does. Of course, you would expect her to be frightened that, uh, that this really evil person might be look hideous or do something bad to her. No, she's afraid he'll ju- look like just anybody else. Uh, she wants him to be exotic and exciting uh, the, the, and, and wicked. She likes that idea. If you look at the top of 1752, uh, Algernon, who is pretending to be earnest, says, I am not really wicked at all, Cousin Cecily. You mustn't think that I am wicked. Cecily says, if you are not, then you have certainly been deceiving us all in a very inexcusable manner. I hope you have not been leading a double life, pretending to be wicked and being really good all the time. That would be hypocrisy. <laughs> well, of course, I guess it would, but wouldn't that be better? No, she, again, by by reversing those cliches, while just making us think about the, the kind of the silliness of the cliched normal views of things. Um and Algernon says, you know, the bottom of the page, I, I want you to reform me. You might make uh, that your mission, if you don't mind, Cousin Cecily. I'm afraid I have I've no time this afternoon. Well, would you mind my reforming myself this afternoon? It is rather quixotic of you, but I think you should try. I will. I feel better already. So he's, he's gonna, you're going to reform me, and oh, magically he's going to get reformed. Um and again, just the, the the quickness and wittiness of this banter is is fantastic. Look on uh, 1753. Um, Algernon says, "You are the prettiest girl I ever saw." Miss Prism says that all good looks are a snare. They are a snare that every sensible man would like to be caught in. Oh, I don't think I would care to catch a sensible man. I shouldn't know what to talk to him about. Uh, again, it's kind of the absurdity and silliness of this is just fantastic. Um, and, and one of the things that this comedy really only works if the characters don't know how silly they are. They have to deliver these lines in very earnest, uh, very straightforward. Um, 
And as Miss Prism and Dr. Chance will come in, we get more of the, these kind of comic commentaries on marriage. Miss Prism says, You are too much alone, dear Dr. Chaucible. You should get married. A misanthrope, I can understand, but a womanthrope, never. With a, shallers, a scholar's shudder, believe me, I do not deserve so neologistic a phrase. The precept, as well as the practice of the primitive church, was distinctly against matrimony. That is obviously the reason why the primitive church has not lasted up to the present day. And as you do not seem to realize, dear doctor, that by persistently remaining single, a man converts himself into a permanent public temptation. Men should be more careful. This very celibacy leads weaker vessels astray. But is a man not equally attractive when married? No married man is ever attractive except to his wife. And often I've been told not even to her. That depends on the intellectual sympathies of the woman. Maturity can always be depended on. Ripeness can be trusted. Young women are green. Dr. Chaucible starts. I spoke horticulturally. My metaphor was drawn from fruits. But where is Cecily? So th all this little uh, uh, back and forth, again, about the idea, you know, uh, no married man is ever attractive except to his wife. Uh, th the fact that you're single uh, might tempt people. So you should get married and then they wouldn't be tempted. Um, and then in comes Jack, dressed all in black. He's in mourning for his dead brother. Again, that's it's a great. This is one of those things that you can't really replicate reading it in the in, on the text because this is always a laugh out loud moment in the theater when you just see Jack coming in dressed in mourning, and you kind of the the visual gag is so great. Uh, and he announces at the top of seventeen fifty four that. Um, his brother is dead. Um, your brother Ernest dead? Quite dead. And Miss Prism says, what a lesson for him. I trust he will profit by it. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of absurd. You know, how is he going to profit by the lesson of being dead? Um, but it, again, it exposes that cliche that people use all the time. Oh, well, that he's fallen on hard luck. That's a lesson for him. I hope he learns from it. Really? Does that, uh, does that actually make sense? Do you think that's really going to, to work? And so by taking it to the uttermost extreme, Wilde shows how, how kind of silly and also how uncaring, how unfeeling, how heartless that kind of a sentiment is, you know, hoping that people learn by the horrible things that happen to them. Now, Jack brings up the issue of being christened with Chaucible. Uh, and Jossible asked, but is there any particular infant in whom you are interested, Mr. Worthing? Your brother was, I believe, unmarried, was he not? He's suggesting, wait, does your brother have illegitimate children? And that's why you're interested in this christening? He says, um, he says, oh, yes. And Miss Prism says, people who live for entirely for pleasure usually are, that is, unmarried. Again, the idea that marriage is not a pleasurable institution. And yet the whole plot is driving towards everyone wanting to get married. Uh, it says, but it is not for any child, dear doctor. I am very fond of children. No, the fact is, I would like to be christened myself this afternoon, if you have nothing better to do. Um, and of course, so he, he's, again, he needs to change his name to Ernest so that he can uh, uh, win the heart of Gwendolyn. And around the middle of 1755, Chaucible says, I would merely, uh, he says, I will not intrude any longer into a house of sorrow. I would merely beg you not to be too much bowed down by grief, but seem to us bitter trials 
or often blessings in disguise. And Miss Prism says, this seems to me a blessing of an extremely obvious kind. Uh, and just, I love, I'm often not sure whether I love Miss Prism or Lady Bracknell more. They're both just so awesome in their own ways. Uh, she's saying, well, blessing in disguise. This seems a very obvious kind of blessing. We're rid of the guy. Again, this kind, that kind of moral attitude, you know, what a lesson for him. I hope he shall profit from it, um, is, it shows the, the kind of, of uncaringness of the very strict Victorian moral attitudes. And then in comes Cecily, uh, who is calling, who's, you know, so, oh, Uncle Jack. And now we get the, the next wrinkle in the plot coming up. Because, of course, Cecily has just been talking to the, the uh, alleged younger brother, Ernest. And, um, uh, and Chaucible is, is excited, says, these are very joyful tidings. And Miss uh, Prism says, after we had all been resigned to his loss, his sudden return seems to me peculiarly distressing. So, so I, I just got into the, I, I just got into, used to the idea, liking the idea that he was dead. It, it's very distressing to find out that he's alive. Uh, again, there's this really bitter mean streak in Miss Prism that I really like a lot. Um, so then we get the entrance of Algernon and Cecily hand in hand, and uh, this leads to the big confrontation between uh, Algernon and. Uh, Jack. And this is probably a, a, about halfway through the play and uh, not a bad place to stop. As we're going through the second part of it, I want you to think about how Wilde sets up parallels between scenes and characters. Uh, he does that rhetorically, the way he kind of balances phrases. He does that in the plot as a whole, the way he balances uh, plots and incidents. And we'll see some examples of that and, and how, he, uh, how he comes to a resolution, what the resolution is like, how satisfying is it, um, what makes it funny, uh, and what makes it satisfying, if it is. Uh, so we'll talk about that and uh, more of Wilde's wonderful sense of humor next time. So I will I have, thank you for your attention, and I will talk about the rest of The Importance of Being Earnest next time.